Today we have a very special panel discussion about racism and diversity in America. I'm joined by Cheryl Proctor Rogers and Rosanna Fisk, two past presidents of the Public Relations Society of America, and Bill Amato, founder of the IW Group, which is a minority-owned communications agency focused on multicultural issues. Um, I'm hoping this will be a safe place to talk about racism and diversity with a focus on what we can do to end systemic racism on the basis of race in America. But first, let's start with a little historical context. Our first president, George Washington, was a slave owner, as were 10 of our first 12 presidents. And the real reason we separated from England was because they were ending slavery and we didn't want to because our ancestors were making too much money off of the free labor of slaves. That's a fact. Read the 1619 Project for a backup on that claim, and you'll see that we're a slaveocracy. And the reason we became a democracy is because Black people demanded equal rights, which they still have never received. If you're white like me, it's easy to say it's not your problem. It's easy to say, if you're not racist, then there's no racism. But that would be like saying the past has no impact on the present, that our upbringing has no impact on our outlook. And that, we know, would be denial. Minneapolis is not a Black problem. It's an American problem. Equality before the law is as American as the flag. We will have change when all Americans realize that this is a problem and that Black Lives Matter, said former Director of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, on CNN. After World War II, Germany took collective action to rid German and Austrian society, culture, press, economy, judiciary, and politics of the national socialist ideology. Nazism. But not only have we failed to do the same with white supremacy, it has become stronger, more organized, and more politically connected. When I was retained by the Defense Commissary Agency to advise on their digital marketing strategy, I traveled to their headquarters at Fort Lee in Virginia. General Lee commanded the Confederate Army during the American Civil War in defense of slavery. He committed treason, and there's a military base named after him. As author James Baldwin said in a radio interview in 1961, quote, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all the time. Fast forward almost 60 years later, And you can see how the context of history, what happened to George Floyd, is outrageous because it's chronic and persistent, right? The only thing different this time is that we saw it happen in real time because it's difficult to deny and ignore racial injustice when you can see it firsthand. I'm not pretending to speak for Black people, but as a white American, You'd have to be blind to fail to see that equality before the law does not mean equality in practice. Black homeownership has been systemically manipulated by redline housing and predatory lending practices. I see how the police became the border patrol charged with keeping blacks in segregated neighborhoods. And I see corporate profits from mass incarceration and how politicians capitalize on -on tough-on-crime rhetoric to get elected, appealing to white people's racist fears, ultimately the fear of equality. And I can see how a lack of social services, drugs, drug dealing is one of the only viable jobs, and militarized policing designed primarily to protect the assets of white people are the manifestations of systemic racism in America today. So so let me ask you this, what would it be like to know that people always see your skin before they see anything else? And what would it be like 
to live in a country that has an economic, social, and political caste system created during slavery that in significant ways continues to this day and which defines black and brown people as lesser. That's what we're here today to discuss and which you're all invited to discuss with us. But let's not define racism as a political problem. Let's define it as an, as an ethical problem. And let's push aside our fears of saying the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing. And let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Let's figure out what we can do about it together. We now have finally arrived at the point of this panel. Quote, because when it comes to truly explaining racial injustice in this country, the table should never be set quickly. There's too much to know. And yet we aggressively choose not to know it says Nicole Hannah-Jones in What is Owned, a story that ran this week in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. So, Bill, let's start with you. I want to invite you to share with us the feedback you got from your students about the title of our panel today. Well, well, Eric, uh, thank you so much for uh, that statement, and, and thank you for inviting me to participate in this conversation Um, When I first posted uh, the announcement about the event, Racism and Diversity, now that I know, what can I do? Um, I received some great comments from boomers, uh, from my colleagues, my peers saying, you know, it's great that we're having this conversation. Thank you. Uh, But then I heard from some next gen folks, some Gen Z and millennials, younger millennials saying, Bill, what are you doing? And why did you agree to participate in a discussion about diversity and racism? And now that I know, uh, what can I do about it? Uh, This has been going on for four centuries with Black Americans, and people stand idly by and do absolutely nothing. And uh, we've known for years that there's racism, injustice, classism in our country, yet nobody does anything about it. Uh, And it created a great conversation. So uh, I actually like the title because it invites people to, you know, jump in and have that conversation. But I want to jump on something that you just said. I think we have created a country uh, where everyone has this need to be politically correct PC. And my feeling about being PC is it doesn't allow us to have conversations. So I have to say some of my white friends Uh, They have known for years that there's racism and injustice in our country, but they sit on the sidelines because they're afraid to do anything because they're worried that they're going to be viewed as culturally misappropriating somebody else's culture or race. And so I think they sit on the sidelines because people are quick to criticize. And I'm so happy that you said we should have a safe place to have this conversation because if we're too PC, we'll never be able to have the honest conversations that are needed. So these young people, again, uh, we're a little critical because they believe that we as boomers and Gen Xers have created this problem. uh, And this problem has been allowed to go on for centuries uh, and we've done nothing about it. So we just keep passing the buck to the next generation, the next generation. So that's how that conversation started. Cheryl, Rosanna, you want to add anything to that? I think Cheryl had some feelings on that, (laughs) so I'm going to turn it over to her. Well, I think one of the first things that um, came to mind uh, for the title was based on those questions that I was getting from my white friends and my white colleagues um, who were really convinced that while they understood that there was something amiss, that there was not um, enough diversity, enough racism, you know, uh, that there was racism in our country, um, they had never really put up the magnifying glass to look past their own, um, I'll say bubble of, of a life and to see and have empathy for Um, others that were actually being oppressed. And I took the question very to heart because I knew knew these individuals personally. I've known them for many years. And I knew that they genuinely wanted to do something beyond 
protesting or writing a congressman or signing a petition of some sort. And so I do believe that the title really speaks to those individuals who, as um, Bill and you, Eric, eloquently stated, they've been on the outskirts kind of looking in um, and not sure what to do and many times looking away um, because they didn't know what to do. So this title invites them to not only participate in the conversation, but to come away with some actionable um, actionable things that they can do um, to be allies to those of us in, in the Black and other um, people of color that have found no justice and no equality um, from um, all aspects of our life. Cheryl, um, when uh, Jay Johnson, the former director of Homeland Security, was on CNN, he was on uh, Fried Zakaria, GPS, the Global Public Square, for an interview a couple weeks back, uh, Fareed asked him, what do you think? Do you think it's different this time? Do you think this will lead to any real change? And he said, you know, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the white soccer mom in Connecticut thinks. So, so I, I want to ask you, as a black woman who has risen to the highest levels in business as a public relations professional, how has racism in America impacted your career? Oh, wow. So this year I celebrate 40 years um, as a public relations professional. And if I were to try to sum it up um, very quickly, thank God for my parents. (laughs) Um, Because of that foundation that they laid for me, as I encountered those speed bumps and the total lack of expectation of what I could achieve, um, I just was able to push past it. But I didn't push past. I didn't push past it alone. When I think of all of the individuals and all of you are on, you know, on this webinar, on the panel today, I think of how my personal cabinet in the community of, for my profession and my personal life were constant sources of encouragement for me. And while we had these conversations in a quiet room or at the bar after, <laughs> after the sessions were over at a, at a PRSA conference, um, it was never lost on me, and it's not lost on me today, that had I not been an African-American woman, the opportunities for me would have been vast. But I, I made a way, I never gave up on me. And without the support of all of those in my life, I, I can't imagine having been able to actually receive the Gold Anvil Award from the past president, Rosanna Fisk, and to have come to this 40 years in public relations um, with my integrity and my humanity intact. So thank you for that question. But Rosanna, um, you know, you too have really scaled the pyramid. Uh, so as a you know public relations professional of Latina descent, how has your experience been the same and different than Cheryl's? Yeah, so I, I mean, I have loved listening to to Bill and to Cheryl and and just some of the comments that were made because I, 
I can relate to a lot of what they're saying and, and, you know, found myself saying, yeah, yeah. And, and, and nodding a lot. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about the point about uh, being PC and where that has shifted a little bit, because that relates to career as well. Um, you know, about 25 years ago, I think all of us were trying to climb the, you know, the corporate ladder, if you will. And if you were lucky, you had the right mentors, the right sponsors, the right support system, you know, some of what Cheryl mentioned that really helped you by being around you. And a lot of that took, in many ways, it took courage and guts from those people, whether, you know, it was our parents, our spouses, our friends, our colleagues, it really took a level of courage that not everyone in you know, those times had. Um, to the point that, that Bill was making about the title, I find that, that the generations of today, the Gen Zers, they have a level of courage in many ways because we've instilled that in them because we didn't have those people around us. So in, in many ways, you know, I, I find myself telling my, my kids, you know, you need to go for it. You need to go in there and, you know, and, and show yourself and, you know, be yourself and so on. And in many ways, we didn't have but our parents or our friends or our close colleagues that were telling us that. So in some cases, it really took, um, you know, that, that level of, of wherewithal from within that said, okay, I may have to work twice or three times as hard to get there, but I'm going to get there. Um, and there were many times when I did see, I saw, I visibly saw it in Cheryl. Um, you know, I, I saw it in myself where we were working two and three times harder than someone who wasn't diverse uh, to get to the same place. And, um, you know, it, it's something that has happened in many of our careers. So to your point about, you know, how have we gotten there? It's been the support system. It's been the courage and, um, you know, the, the persistence and, frankly, the resilience of every time we were sort of knocked down. I have no other way to put it. We decided, okay, I got knocked down this time, but I'm going to see how, what else can I do and how can I do it better? And um, picking ourselves up and doing it all over again and hopefully doing it better. So um, it took a lot of that for sure. Uh, to our attendees, you know, what has your experience been like? Uh, let us know in, in the chat there. Tell us, you know, do you, is your experience been similar? Has it been different? Whites have been killing blacks with impunity in this country for 400 years. But as Van Jones says in The African Americans, a new PBS documentary by Henry Louis Gates Jr., quote, the difference now is that someone can hold up one of these and get what's going on. They can put it on YouTube and the whole world has to deal with it. That's what's new. It's not the protest. It's not the brutality. It's the fact that we can force a conversation about it. So my question to the panel is, how can we as marketing and public relations professionals force our clients to have a conversation about this? I, uh, let me get started because I want to say I don't think there's at least I haven't experienced any forcing involved. Um, I think we're all living what's happening today in real time. And to your point about we're all seeing it, you know, when I saw the George, I didn't see the whole George Floyd video. You know, I saw snippets of it because, frankly, I was I didn't necessarily want to see the whole video. Um, but when I saw it, my Initial reaction, um, I, you know, was shock, but at the same time, it was, why again? Why? I, I mean, it was almost like this rage inside that it was just, why? I'm tired of seeing this. It was a moment of being tired of seeing it. It was a moment of almost like, this is it. I'm, I'm up to here with it. Uh, of frustration, of anger, of sadness, of um, you know, all of those rolled into one. And what I have seen around me is a lot of the same feelings, honestly. It's it's a lot of the feelings of exhaustion of why are we in this? Why are we experiencing it? 
I feel like it's the, you know, hundredth time that we've seen it. And it's just, we've known since the very first time that it wasn't right. So why are we seeing it again? Um, so that level of exhaustion and anger and sadness just has driven us to a point that it's, it's really risen to levels like we've never seen them before. And the video aspect of it and the filming, absolutely. When you see it firsthand, uh, when you see it right in front of you, it, it's not a story that it's told second or third hand, but you're actually seeing it. That's extremely impactful. Um, and so I think, you know, our, the, the Gen Zers, the millennials that are really documenting a lot of their lives, there's a lot of, you know, sometimes we, we think, oh, my gosh, they're always on their phones. They're always, uh, you know, filming everything. They're telling their entire lives on social media and to, to the other the other side of that is thank God because look at what they're you know bringing light to thank God that they're doing that and, and really sharing with all of us all of the things that perhaps many people wouldn't see so anyway that that's my soapbox on that issue but you know I, you can tell that I have a lot of emotion on it yeah and I want to agree with Rosanna I think uh, the corporations uh, we haven't had to guide them that that much. In fact, uh, we all feel that same anger uh, when we saw the George Floyd video and uh, the subsequent videos, Breonna Taylor and a few others. Uh, I think the corporate people were quite upset and angry uh, and said, we need to do something. And the cool thing about this, and it's such a, you know, it, unfortunately, it takes these senseless murders for, for people to be able to uh, uh, realize that they need to do something. The corporate people actually felt that they needed to get away from this typical PR language, uh, you know, and, and, and focus on really what matters uh, and that this was a senseless killing. This could have been avoided, that we need to be intentional about what we're doing. And so it actually took uh, many of the restrictions that uh, a lot of PR people place on corporate people and allowed them to be able to speak their mind about what really is happening in this country. So uh, I didn't have to do much coaching. The company said, we want to do something. Bill, help us get this done. And, and I was really very supportive of that. And, you know, I'll add that one of the things that has struck me about the the response um, and not a reaction. I think that's very different. Um, organizations are not just reacting, they're really, re they are thoughtfully responding. And I think the whole issue of the COVID-19 pandemic has really created a a greater sense of sensitivity, I believe. I think most of us are, are doing a lot of self-reflection. Um, we're, no, we're not um, in the trappings of our um, organizations where we're actually, you know, the brick and mortar. Um, everyone's at home, and I, and, I, and I think it's also giving... Um, not only our nation, but the world, the opportunity to really reflect on really what's important in the world. And um, as everyone has stated uh, so eloquently, it's an opportunity to hit the reset button and to get this right. And to see it happen so quickly, um, you know, I wasn't, I was too young for the 60s. I, you know, I did my little essays and, you know, and my parents were very adamant to educate me on what was happening um, during the civil rights movement. Um, but I remember, I believe it was the 80s um, in Rosanna and Bill, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, where all of a sudden there were all of these this idea that we were gonna have more diversity and every corporation, you know, they would pull someone from any, you know, anywhere in the organization and say, okay, now you are our vice president of diversity and or multiculturalism or, you know, minority affairs. And, and you go out there and be the face of our, you know, our, our, our agenda. 
but there was no meat behind that agenda. And so that's why it had no sustainability. And that's why we are where we are today. I think the young people that Bill is speaking about are just so courageous. And Rosanna's right. Um, we raise them to be this way. We raise them to have a voice, to be storytellers. And so they just translate that with their phones. Um, and they are capturing the important stories that are going to help shape how we move forward, not only as we start to see changes in the laws, but changes in the hearts of those who are in positions to make the change real and sustainable. We have a question from Lauren Taylor. I'm going to uh, turn on her line so she can talk and, or he can talk and ask it himself. Lauren, are you there? Uh, yes. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've been doing some research on this, and I just wanted to know if anybody has any comments, insights, or even information about what we're seeing uh, is a kind of an encroachment of white supremacist movements infiltrating inside America's law enforcement and uh, armed forces and what bearing that might have on, uh, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of police reform or, you know, restructuring how we do uh, policing, particularly in black communities. Thank you. I cannot speak to um, any research or, or data to, um, to, to really respond to your question, Lauren. Um, I'm married to a former um, police officer, um, 25 years with the Michigan State Police, um, spent most of his career in narcotics undercover, um, and has been um, decorated um, for um, everything from busting up um, different um, gangs to um, identifying arson, uh, arsonist that was plaguing uh, the city of Detroit. Um, but what he shares with me is there is a real need to have some criteria, some added criteria and accountability um, for those who are sworn to protect um, the communities in which they're working. And I think often that you come into an organization, they do a background check, they check your references, you know, they take you through all of these uh, hurdles that you must um, jump over before you're hired. And then there's never, nothing ever happens after that. You can be in an organization, and I'm speaking of the police as well, for 30, 40 years. And is there ever um, a mental health evaluation? Unless there's something that comes up and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's some red flags. And, and so there's that reaction to, to try to solve the problem right away and put the fire out. Um, but what is the criteria for those who are sworn to protect us and have the means and have been given the authority to do so. Um, so I, I do understand that racism exists in this country. I understand that there are organized groups that are um, work while we're asleep, they're up trying to figure out how to place more hurdles in our way. Um, but I would say that 
every problem is very complex. And so when we start putting very simple solutions to very complex problems, I think it's kind of like the toothpaste in the tube. You know, if you squeeze it, it, it's just going to ooze out everywhere and you'll see it manifesting itself in different places. I, I don't think for one moment, Lauren, that white supremacy, white supremacists have only been um, in the um, police force. I think that's what we're focusing on now. And, we, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to see significant police reform. But I think this kind of sentiment um, you can find in all aspects of our, our daily lives. Um, and those of us who have our people of color who have experienced this um, systemic racism where you know it when you see it, you can feel it, and everyone around knows it. But I think for the first time, we're going to see real change and it's going to be very uncomfortable for those systems to remain intact. I, I do have to say that the, it's a very complicated problem. That, as Cheryl mentioned, there's 18,000 different law enforcement agencies around the country, local, regional, state, some that are embedded in school districts. And so uh, it's, it's uh, going to be a difficult and complicated problem to solve. Um, we're actually having conversations with law enforcement now uh, in having discussions about how we could put a little bit more teeth uh, in some of the problems that are surfacing all around the country with local law enforcement, state law enforcement, et cetera. So uh, the biggest challenge is that uh, the protections that are available to people who work uh, often impede uh, the ability for um, law enforcement officials to, you know, weed out the people that are creating the problems within law enforcement. So you, that's why you hear about these police officers that have multiple infractions uh, because of the policies and procedures that are in place to protect all workers. There has to be a serious number of complaints, uh, uh, sessions, uh, you know, with each of the officers in order to do anything about that. So there's conversations now about having federal legislation that would make every officer who is engaged in any infraction, any racist incident, any act of brutality, that they would have to be registered on this registry so that uh, so that everyone knows in advance that, that these things are happening and that law enforcement, especially the uh, leaders of law enforcement, have a little bit more leverage on being able to punish these people and weed them out. But right now, uh, under current laws, uh, depending on state and community, often protect uh, the people that create this abuse. So um, there's a lot of discussion about this. And as Cheryl mentioned, uh, unfortunately, it's very complicated uh, and if you heard the NPR story just recently, I think it was last Sunday, um, there was a study being done that often the communities, the values of the communities where these law enforcement agencies exist, often shape uh, the response um, that these officers have in their communities. So we have to look at society, the environment, uh, the social norms, the people that live in those communities, and change behavior all the way around before we could uh, get our arms around this issue uh, and do something about it. We have a uh, amazing comment from uh, Maisha Proctor. She must be related to someone in the communications business because it's very articulate. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, and let's let's cover this. Can you all share how do we hold our companies who have declared that they will create account that they will be accountable? And how do you be assertive and confident to push past the fear of retaliation to help her create that change? I mean, I can tell you, you know, and I, I shared this with you, but I want to share this with the panel. So, you know, I I do these pretty regularly. I um, 
I got the same open rate on the announcement for this panel as I do with the other, all the other panels, but I actually got more unsubscribes than clicks. That's never happened to me before on this topic, you know? And then I kept sharing it on social media and getting such low engagement and thinking to myself, why are people so afraid to go on the record about this? That's just tragic, you know? So I totally empathize with this question of like, how could we, how do we get past the fear of retaliation? I'm not afraid if they retaliate, because frankly, if you unsubscribed because you got that from me, I'm glad you did, because I don't want to send you email anymore. So that's, we're all good there. But how do, how do you deal with this? Like, you know, because it's not like this doesn't exist at the higher, highest levels of corporate America. I think it's an excellent question. I tell you, one of the key things um, that wherever I have worked um, over my career that's been wonderful is that every time that I have um, gone into a new role, not only am I learning about the new role and the company and learning about the people, it's also offered me great learning about diversity in in many, many ways. and by, by that, I mean, I have discovered yet another aspect of myself that held some kind of unconscious bias. And I say that, uh, you know, very openly because um, there are times when I say, wow, I didn't realize that was, the, you know, a, a microaggression. And now, and, and I go back and I think I did that 10 years ago to somebody. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I was an idiot. Well. I wasn't necessarily an idiot. I just didn't know. And now I know. And I think that the key thing that we have to all continue to do, and you know, to, to Maisha's point, is really emphasize that continued learning, that continued open dialogue. And um, you know, we have we have um leaders that sometimes we kind of hear them speaking and, and, you know, I put my hands over my ears and I'm going, Oh my God, you know, I can't believe they just said that. And then I realized, well, they don't know. Um, It's up to me to go and tell them, Hey, I need to have a conversation with you about something because I'm not sure if you know that this is the impact that what you said had versus what was your intent and really understanding the difference of, you know, intent versus impact. Um, I, I, and I, ha- I had someone on my team that where this happened just last week, where, you know, we were, ha- we, it was a diversity related conversation. It was a corporate diversity and inclusion, one hour long conference call or two hour long conference call. And the host on the call made a comment that you know the person on my team caught immediately and said, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe this person said that." And you know, and she reached out to me, "Do you think I should say something?" And I said, "Absolutely. You should absolutely call that person and say, "Hey, I am saying this from a place of caring. I am saying this from a place of wanting to help you continue to learn, and I am saying this because uh, you know, the person that asked the question was a diverse individual and said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want them to not like me. I don't want them to, you know, basically retaliate because I'm bringing this forward. And what she did, she did it in a very professional way and in a very authentic way. And, you know, the feedback was the person was kind of quiet, but at the end of the day, I know that this person's going to come back and say, thank you. Thank you for doing that because I didn't know I was doing it. So, my my advice is continue to have those conversations, continue to bring that learning forward, because that is exactly what we need to do. And that is exactly I mean, the, the, the courage and, 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 and all of the passion that you may feel around it is is not enough. We just got to keep going. We got to keep doing it. I agree. I agree. And I think what is really critical is really some of the basics that we talk about and that we share um, with the young people that we mentor. We, We encourage them 
to have champions and supporters within the organization. And those champions do not have to be in your department um, or in your unit. Um, look across the organization and find some common ground and have that individual be a champion for you. Um, that person is also um, aware of the culture of your organization. Uh, they understand, you know, um, where some of the skeletons in the closet um, are hiding out. Um, and so they can also give you some um, encouragement and, and even perhaps serve as a sounding board to how you might want to approach the individual or the topic. I think it's also important to um, have peer mentors um, and have mentors outside of the organization. You know, I always had two or three. And when it came to peer mentors, I have dozens and dozens that I can call on um, to run something by them, um, you know, and uh, Rosanna and, and Bill are shaking their heads because without this community, many of us are in hostile environments. And sometimes you just need the reality check is it me or, you know, or am I being too sensitive because I am a person of color? And so you want to be able to be um, in a safe place, as Eric talked about earlier, uh, to be able to have those conversations. And sometimes when you are emotional, um, it can be hard to, um, you know, be perspective and have good judgment on when is the right time to have that conversation and how to have it. I do want to say really quickly, if it's okay, Erica, uh, because I agree with what Rosanna and Cheryl are saying, but I want uh, people that are in corporations to, um, if, if they hear their leadership talk about authenticity, about doing something about racism and classism, I want you to walk up to that executive and say, what can I do to help you get there? Uh, I want to be your ally and I'm going to volunteer to support you get there. So uh, I'm part of that team. So uh, when, when people feel like they, they're, uh, they have a team and they're held accountable by someone like you, it's going to make a huge difference. So a lot of times people don't do that. They hear their executives say these things and say, wow, the executive is going to do that. It's your opportunity at that time to say, uh, I'm going to help you get there. Uh, and we're going to help hold each other accountable. Uh, I also want people to look for teachable moments. And, you know, we talk about implicit bias and unconscious bias. Uh, but a lot of times people, especially my white friends, sometimes are afraid to say things. Uh, and, and sometimes they'll say something that sounds inappropriate. Think of that as a teachable moment. Uh, yeah, because uh, we don't do enough of that. If somebody says something that is out of line or doesn't sound good to you, Look at that as an opportunity to create a conversation so that you continue to have those conversations and people aren't fearful about tackling racism or classism or social injustice. We have a question from Andrea Gills. I'm going to bring uh, her on. Andrea? Hi, how are you, everyone? Thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. And, and I love the, the great engagement that's um, going on here. Um, I'm curious to know, as you know, when you're having these uh, conversations, and I work in the International Center at the University of Kentucky, so um, I'm dealing with a lot of the immigration side and nationality origin, as well as other dimensions of diversity. Um, but when you're outside that space, um, and you're talking to someone that you are just baffled, um, and, and in, the, in the professional context, I'm curious if you all have either asked a question or received a question that was very that thought-provoking and that left them thinking and that was effective in, in, in kind of opening that, that gate um, and, and leading to a more open mindset. Great question. Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> I think it depends on the on the on the context of the statement. If it 
you know, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head and, and my colleagues will surely chime in on this. I would first gauge whether this is a really quick conversation um, or if this is something that really requires, you know, sitting down with coffee, you know, <laughs> or over a meal to really do that education that um, Bill and Rosanna are talking about. Um, and then once you make that decision, and then that then drives you, um, you know, coming up with a great question to, to make the other person think uh, without knowing knowing where they're where they're where they're coming from and what their perspective is and what their life story is um you you know you could really create um you know an unintended consequence based on um just trying to have a question at the ready i think the best opportunities are when you really have an opportunity to have a discussion have a conversation and to ask, you know, it sounds like you've you've got some real um, misconceptions or some misunderstanding about this particular topic. I would be happy to have a conversation with you about that. Um, what what works for you? Coffee or lunch or are you available now? So um, I think that 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 would be important because we always want to think about the desired outcome. And so we're all communications professionals. So we don't ever wanna communicate without considering the audience, the person we're talking to, um, and then the um, desired outcome that we're, we're seeking. I'm not hearing answer. Bill. That was a perfect answer, Cheryl. Um, so what can you really add to that? I, I do think that as communicators, we probably should be better about listening. So if something happens uh, in a conversation, uh, that might be an opportunity to pull that person aside and say, uh, help me understand um, from your point of view or from your experience um, where, where that comment came from or, uh, or I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, what you just said and, and where, where, where that's based from. Uh, and, and I think if you throw the questions like that back, uh, then that, that, that will start a conversation. But exactly what Cheryl said, it depends on the situation, the context. Uh, but, but I also think that we should be so much better listeners. I think as PR people, we teach people to come up with their elevator speeches. And I always wonder what happens when we get to our floor. Uh, I would just like to just ask people, you know, what was your day like? Or, you know, what are some things that you have a, a, an issue or a problem with? Tell me uh, how I could make it easier for you to do your job uh, and then let them talk. And then you're going to be able to find out where you can plug in. So that's just my thought on that. Share with you a comment I got from... Uh from a family member who is uh, in public education. And he texted me, he said, uh, I believe a significant portion of the problem stems from implicit bias in public education that exists from those who lead school districts and those who deliver education to students. I wonder if uh, you'd be willing to make any uh, comments about your experience in public education. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm a product of public schools all the way through, um, you know, from uh, high school. I, I came to America in high school. So high school and college, I went to public schools. And, um, you know, to your point, I have to say, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yes, there's a lot of it. It absolutely is. I remember hearing about situations, uh, cultural situations that I had never experienced, and yet my friends who were uh, white Caucasian friends, they could completely relate to that situation, yet my friends who were not white Caucasian, you know, who were Black, African American, or, or um, um, Hispanic, or Asian, had no idea what the cultural context um, that was given in the classroom was. So sometimes uh, 
teachers would offer analogies and none of us could really could really see those analogies because it just wasn't something that was part of our of our culture or our life mm-hmm. um, so those you know those components in education absolutely but i tell you it's not just in education or even in the k through 12 it happens in college and it happens in corporate america um, I, I i tell my team a funny story i'm very big about not using clichés because I remember it took me my second job working as a professional and I started out as a reporter. It was my second job when I finally understood what stepping up to the plate meant. I had no idea what that was. I was looking for this plate. Was it, you know, China? What was it? I mean, is it, you know, a special brand? I didn't know what it was until someone said it's a sports analogy related to baseball. And when I understood that, I was like, oh, wow, here's a cultural analogy that everyone assumes you understand. And it's very much a sports analogy. So and if you think about who's playing baseball today, it's a lot different than who was playing baseball, you know, 25 years ago, even 20 years before that. You know, think about just some of the hardships that that blacks, African-Americans experienced in the baseball world. Mm -hmm. Um, So. When, when we use certain uh, analogies or language just to explain something, we're using it very much centered in a world that was white Caucasian based. So to your point that you know, the education from the onset, it starts out that way. Yeah, in many cases it does, it, but it also takes people like us. It takes people like, you know, I, I saw that Natalie from uh, University of Florida signed on. People like Natalie Astore, who's a, a professor at UF. Natalie Tyndall, who's a, a professor in Georgia. Um, you know, Rochelle Ford, uh, who is now the, the dean at Elon University. It takes a lot of these uh, incredibly talented, diverse educators to bring a different perspective to the classroom. And all of us who perhaps are, you know, a little bit more well-versed in diversity to bring that perspective into the business world. Um, So maybe we can change education, but we also have to change what happens after education. So so to the panel, can you give me three distinct actions that we can take to help be to 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 be part become part of the solution? Sure, I'll start. I I think the first thing that we can all do is really embrace learning about the history. Not just the history of your own culture, but the history of other cultures. And not just reading it in a book. Going to festivals, going to museums, making this part of your life. And I just think that there's too often, even as a person of color, um, I just remember when I learned about Alice Alice Dunnigan, who was the first um, African-American journalist um, on Capitol Hill and all that she went through. I just found out about her a couple of years ago. I was a journalism major. (laughs) Now, how is that possible that I didn't know of this iconic figure. Um, So history, and and then I found out she was a sorority sister. (laughs) She was a member of Sigma Gamma Rho sorority. Um, So learning about the history um, and being curious. You know, I, I often talk about confirmation bias and how it's so important not to be trapped by confirmation bias. And um, it's so ironic um, when you think about, you know, individuals who are most comfortable um, with people who look like them, who talk like them, have the experiences that they have. And before you know it, your whole world is being shaped by one perspective and one point of view. And when I used to talk about that subject of confirmation bias, Ironically, I used to give NASCAR as an example of how on Sunday I would be flipping through looking for something to watch on television 
And then, you know, there's NASCAR. And I'm thinking, who would want to sit in the stand and watch cars just go around and around and around a circle? And then I thought one day, wait a minute, who are these people? There's, there's a lot of people in the stands. And what do they all have in common that I'm not paying attention to because of my own bias? Um, and these, this NASCAR could possibly be an important um, audience for one of my clients. So confirmation bias um, is um, to uh, listen. Bill said it, we have to learn to listen. But most importantly, what my father always taught me is be curious about everything. So if you're walking by and you see something, not to ignore it, but to start noticing the world around you and, and um, be intentional. And then lastly, the third thing would be diversify your life. If you are finding that all of your friends look like you, think like you, um, if you have a dinner party and there's no diversity at the dinner table, then that should be a signal to make some changes in your life. Um, I know that um, once someone says, I don't even, I don't have any um, black friends and I, I don't, I don't live in a community um, where the black people are. So how will I ever have black friends? Well, I would imagine that there are uh, individuals at that workplace, in their, ch in their church, um, in their professional organizations that they have just never noticed were there. Uh, so the third thing, Eric, diversify your own life first. Rosanna, you wanna go? Sure. So my number one thing is vote. <laughs> I'm going to say it very loudly and very clearly. Vote and vote and vote because that is such a critical component to seeing changes come through and, and to really, um, you know, have a say in what happens in especially in this country, but in really in all countries that have any kind of a voting system. So um, I would say, and I would especially urge those who are Gen Z uh, and millennials to really make it a point of voting. Uh, those are the lowest uh, turnouts come from Gen Z and from millennials. And so you have, they're the most vocal when it comes to protests and when it comes to activism, yet when it comes to actually taking action, uh, you know, to make serious changes, they're not turning out for that. So I would say voting is, is the key one for me, number one. Number two, I would say change up your entertainment, um, especially during COVID. I mean, listen, there isn't anyone that isn't watching Netflix or Hulu or, or Prime or, you know, just add whatever streaming service you're watching. We're all, you know, we're all, there's not a lot of primetime um um, shows right now because they haven't filmed them because of COVID. So a lot of us are streaming a lot of different things. And in every single one of those platforms has a Black Lives Matter um, component. Uh, if you log on to Netflix, you're going to see on the very top, there's a Black Lives Matter entertainment that you can actually, there are a number of different shows and documentaries and movies um, that uh, show up. So I would say diversify your entertainment, listen to new music, um, ask Alexa to play something different for you. And that is, that's a really cool way to get a taste of something that's different and that can really help you just see a different side of things. And then the third thing I would say, and Cheryl sort of touched on this, is um, if you belong to a professional organization, you know, whether it is uh, PRSA or um, IPRA or, you know, any any of those, any of the professional organizations and some of those that are ethnic type of organizations like, uh, you know, Beepers or, um, you know, the Asian American Journalist Association or any of those, 
I would say make it a point to socialize with these people. Don't just come for the program and walk out, but leave those or leave those opportunities with, even if they're a Zoom opportunity, with a couple of new people that you hadn't met before and that you know are going to diversify your knowledge and your learning in some way. So I know, you know, the people that we have on this panel, I met through PRSA. <laughs> and so, you know, thank God that we connected with one another and thank God that, you know, we, we did something about it. So um, I would say very much do that. Follow up with people that are different from you that you can learn something from. You're up, Bill. Can you hear me? <laughs> um, God, Cheryl and Rosanna, uh, you just uh, covered everything. I think what I want to leave with everyone is that, uh, as Cheryl said, be curious. We could learn from every single culture that exists in our country. And and, and I read a lot. And, and I have to say that uh, I've heard a lot of different things. And one thing I learned is that uh, we could learn from every culture. So uh, Booker T. Washington, a black American patriot, he said, if you want to lift up yourself, lift up someone else. And so I think we have to be intentional about what we're going to do to help the black community. And I'm going to volunteer to help a historically black college and university. We're also taking Juneteenth off as a holiday each and every year at our company. I also heard that uh, a phrase, donde comen cinco comen seis. Uh, and, and that's a Latin term. If you could feed five, you could feed six. And I really believe that we should look at that in terms of our ideas and our thinking and our curiosity. There should always be room at our table. And in Latin culture, if there's five people at the table, you could feed six. If there's six, you could feed seven. We should always leave room at our table for a different point of view, a different idea. And we should be open to those. And, and that includes people that we don't always agree with. Uh, and even uh, white Americans, uh, Sam Walton, he said, go against conventional wisdom, think upstream. Uh, so we could learn from every single one of our communities. And if we keep an open mind, that's going to help us advance not only diversity and inclusion, but representation and equity. So thank you. And I'm going to throw three in too. I'm putting them in the chat right now. These are three resources that I've thought were, uh, it's hanging up here on me. I can't, I'm trying to get this in the chat. Give me one sec here. Well, uh, won't let me send it in the chat, uh, but I'll give you the resources. So there's a, first I'll give you some entertainment. There's a terrific movie called Harriet about Harriet Tubman, which like kind of flopped and it's a great movie. It's so exciting and entertaining and it really teaches you so much about the Underground Railroad and it's, I loved it. You can get it on Netflix. The other thing is something that Rosanna told me about uncomfortable conversations with a black man mm -hmm. and it's a bunch of youtube videos by a black man from austin who basically taught he's talking pretty much to white people about all the things you're like afraid to ask like do you say african-american do you say black how do you and it's fantastic and then the last is i think probably the best resource um it's an article that ran in the new york times sunday magazine um by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote The 1619 Project. Um, and it's about the issue of wealth. You know, it's if you want to know why things happen, follow the money. I mean, it, it, it shows you all how it's happening, you know, why it's happening, why systemic, systemic racism is about money, you know. So those are the three things I would suggest reading. Um, I want to thank our panelists. Um, I want to hopefully you know, leave you with the thought that hope does not have a color. You know, hope has no color. And I mean, you know, if we've gotten this far, you know, this doesn't mean we can't get all the way. And progress is not a straight line. You know, things go up and down. So just keep your eye focused on the future and on the hope. And if you're younger, our hope is on you to lead us to the future, to lead us to a better world than the one that we're in now. Um, I want you all to join us on July 1st for a discussion with Joseph Rome. 
He's the author of How to Go Viral and Reach Millions, Top Persuasion Secrets of Social Media Superstars. And um, if you'd like access to my free course, which is an intro to SEO, you'll, be, you'll get a link to that after we uh, cancel the call today. It'll just come up on your screen and you can learn the basics of search engine optimization uh, for free. You sign up, you get lifetime access. It's all on demand. If you're watching this on Periscope, on Facebook, on YouTube, um, you, can, you can ask questions and you can participate every week by signing up at prtechwednesdays.com. Uh, also, if you miss it, you get a link to uh, what happened here today. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, help us get this message out by leaving a review, by subscribing, by commenting. Use your engagement to get this message out there. Um, if you want bonus content that I only share with email subscribers, you can sign up at ericschwartzman.com forward slash blog. Um, Bill, Rosanna, Cheryl, thank you so much. Would you all like to just give a, 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 a final parting note on, you know, what we can do, how we can find you, how we can get in touch with you? Um, sure. Um, Cheryl Proctor Rogers. Uh, my company uh, website is a stepaheadpr.com. Rosanna? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RoFiskWF, and um, I work for Wells Fargo, so it's easy. It's Rosanna.Fisk at WellsFargo.com. Great. And Eric, I already posted, so uh, please feel free, anyone, if you want to write or have uh, additional conversations, I think we're all open to that. So thanks so much, Eric. And share please us, follow share Eric. Bill, share, share it with us, Bill, uh, orally as well, because sure. uh, the people who are watching it don't have the chat. Sure. My email address you can uh, is bill.imada, I-M-A-D-A, at iwgroupinc.com. And I want to just say thanks to Eric Schwartzman for doing a great job. And please follow him. Uh, he lost a few yes, followers, but yes. I want you all to get people to follow him because he's a great yes. guy. Hey, I am yes. humbled and grateful to have, been, uh, the, to have done this conversation. And let me tell you, if there's a bunch of young people on this call thinking, you know what? I disagree with that. I agree with that. They're wrong here. They're right here. Let me know. And let's do a panel with you guys next. Let's do a panel with a bunch of Gen Z and Gen Xers and Gen Yers. Sorry, I'm so checked out. <laughs> let's, let's have you guys lead the discussion. This platform can be used for you too. So with that said, thank you all. And we will see you on the next PR Tech Wednesdays. Thanks Thank so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.